I'm, I hope you all have power and that things went well for you this week. Uh, for those of you here in person with us this morning, welcome. For those of us joining us online this morning, welcome. It's a joy for us to be together. Uh, this morning, we're finishing our current series on rediscovered about rightful rent. But I thank you that this is a place where people and children can all themselves. It's a parable of judgment, a commentary on the way Jesus was being treated, and a story about how he knew what was coming. But the box that the religious leaders wanted to hold him in, both literally as in the grave and figuratively as in the proverbial box that they would like to keep him in, the parable has some far-reaching consequences that Jesus is addressing to the religious leaders of the day. At this point, Jesus had been challenged again and again, and the religious leaders had been trying to find a way and a reason to arrest him. They had seen him perform miracles, and he, they knew he had been seen talking to and dining with sinners. They had watched him consistently undermine their roles and their way of life, and he tells them this story. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for it and a wine press and built a tower and leased it to the tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard, and they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another servant, struck him on the head, and treated him shamefully, and he sent another, and him they killed. And with so many others, some they beat and some they killed. He still had one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? Will he come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to the others? Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it was marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but they feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Jesus was using very specific language to convey his point. He used specific details that they would have been familiar with. The vineyard was used to symbolize Israel. He went on to say that the vineyard had been built up with a fence. The fence was designed to protect the vineyard from all manner of thieves and animals that could uproot everything he had worked so hard to build. He also built a wine press and a tower. These are important details because Jesus is telling them that this land is special. It was cared for. It was being lovingly cultivated and maintained. And after he worked the land, he leased the vineyard to his tenants and took off for another country. After some time, the harvest season arrives and the landowner sends servants to collect his share of the crops. Verses 2 and 3 say, When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. If the vineyard is Israel itself, then the tenants, the ones who worked the land, they were the religious leaders, comprised mostly of Pharisees and Sadducees of the day. And they had been in an almost constant conflict with Jesus. They were legalistic and held great political power. And Jesus was disrupting their status quo. The Pharisees tended to judge everyone according to their own traditions and expectations. And they thought that their rule brought people into favor with God. Now Jesus was telling them that they had put God, his father, in a box too. Also, their power was being threatened and undermined, and the people were listening to him and following Jesus and not them. This had them angry. Angry enough that they had plans to have him arrested and eventually crucified. 
Now, sometime after the land was cultivated and the crop began to grow, the tenants decided that they wanted to be the owners and take over that vineyard. They had tended to the land, they wanted that land for themselves, and when the servant is sent by the owner, they beat him up. Over and over, the landowner sent servants to get his share of the crop. And over and over, the tenants the prophets were mistreated. Hebrews 11.37 says, They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. Throughout Israel's history, God's prophets, the servants, were sent and rejected, oftentimes with horrible consequences. But God still wants us, his precious fruit, to come to him. So he sent on his only son. Notice in verses 6 and 7, he said, He still had one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. The son, the rightful heir to the land, that land that was his birthright, but those tenants had a sinister plan. Aside from being greedy and wanting what was never theirs to begin with, historically speaking, when there was an absentee landowner, he would have hired a manager or had tenants to tend to his land. If after several years there was no evidence that the landowner was still alive, they would have taken ownership of the land. By continuingly to harm and killing the servants of the owner, the tenants were trying to gain ownership of that land. Not to be the ones in charge of the people, or in this case, the owners of the land. They did not want to be told what to do or how to do it, or to be told that they were wrong. They had their own set of rules that had worked just fine for them. And now there was a disruption that they just couldn't ignore. Jesus was telling them in this parable that he was not a prophet, he was not a slave, he was, and he is, the beloved son. He owns that vineyard. That vineyard is his birthright. He knows that they're not just going to reject him, but that they're going to beat him and kill him. So he goes on to say the ultimate box-defeating line from Psalm 118 that my little friend read just a minute ago. The stone that the builders rejected became the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. He is telling all those that will listen in no uncertain terms that the beloved son who is being rejected, who will be arrested, who will be killed, and has become an outcast, will become the cornerstone. Now think about that for just a second. The stone that was rejected, rejected by the very ones who should have known better, the builders, the tenants, the religious leaders, the ones who were educated and knew that a savior was coming, the very people who were supposed to be in the know rejected the stone. But the rejected stone was not just going to stay rejected. That stone was going to become the single most important stone. Now, I'm not an expert builder, but the definition of a cornerstone is the foundation stone, the first stone set when construction begins. Every other stone will be laid after this stone, and the cornerstone determines the position of the structure. If a stone is not perfect, it's rejected, and there is no way an imperfect rejected stone becomes that important cornerstone. And the builder would know which stones were rejected and were imperfect. A builder would be the ones who rejects the stone. Think about this. The very builders should have known when they saw the perfect stone. The religious leaders should have known that Jesus was the one. They had read the scriptures. They had studied the scriptures. But don't miss what he says to them in verse 10. Have you not read this scripture? Those religious leaders were like the builders of the day, thinking a stone was just a stone. It didn't look quite right. It didn't fit quite right. 
It didn't look the way a cornerstone was supposed to look. He didn't look the way they thought a savior would look. He didn't act the way they thought a savior would act. He didn't say the things they thought a savior should say. He hung out with sinners. He talked to lepers and women and children. He healed people on the Sabbath. He let his disciples pick a little bit of grain on the Sabbath. Simply put, he did not fit into their box of what they thought a savior was supposed to be. When my son was little, he had a poo in the box instead of a jack in the box. Uh, I'm a huge Winnie the Pooh fan, and I think that clowns can be a little bit scary. But the idea was the same. You turn the little handle, and hopefully it pops. It's a little bit old. The idea was the same. You've turned the little handle and pop, it would come out. And without fail, every time Winnie the Pooh popped out, Alec would startle, and he would pout, and he would start to cry. Because he was, he was a little surprised by Winnie the Pooh popping out, and I would stuff Pooh Bear back into the box and turn his attention to something else. Oh, now it's not going to close. There we go. I tell you this story because I think it's something that we do with Jesus. Sometimes we want to smush him into a little box, and then when he doesn't fit anymore, he pops out, and we all seem surprised and even angry that he appeared when we weren't quite expecting him to. To the religious leaders of the day, and maybe even to some of us now, we try to make Jesus fit into our mold, into our idea of what he should be. We want him to fix our problems. We want him to turn the electricity back on and take the trees out of our yard. We want him to instantly resolve this conflict or mend this relationship. We don't want to acknowledge our mistakes and our sinful behavior. We don't want to face our wrongdoings. We want a savior that conforms to our wants now. But just as he didn't conform to their ideas of what a savior should be then, he's not going to conform to what our ideas of what a savior should be now. He is not going to comply with the rules or standards that we often want to squish him into. Roman 12:2 reminds us to not to conform to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We are not to conform to this world, but we are supposed to be transformed by God. And when the world tries to fit us into a box or put our faith into a box or put our Jesus in a box, we need to be able to respond to it and to discern the will of God. And we will find what is good and acceptable and perfect. And we will discover that no box can contain us either. The stone that the builders rejected became the cornerstone, the very foundation of our lives, the stone that determines the position of the structure, the position of our structure, was rejected by the ones who should have known better. Jesus knew that there was no box that could ever contain him, not the box they tried to fit him into and not the box that they laid his body in. No box could ever contain Jesus, so maybe we should stop trying to put him in one because eventually that box is going to burst open. And like my friend Winnie the Pooh here, he's going to burst out, and I don't want us to be surprised. So my big idea for this morning is Jesus already broke forth from one box. Let's not squish him into another. Jesus defeated the box they created for him when God's power raised him from the grave. The resurrection is God's declaration that the plans of Jesus' enemies and even death itself had no power over him. And because he lives today, we can live new lives too. Lives that are not confined to the boxes and controlling people try to create for us. Or in order to limit us, we too can live by the power of renewing 
I'm sorry, we too can live by the renewing power of God. Martin Luther once said, if I were God and the world treated me as, I, as it treated him, I would kick the wretched thing to pieces. Aren't you glad that God doesn't see us as a wretched thing to kick to pieces, but rather as a lovingly cultivated vineyard? We just need to be careful that we don't become like the tenants and misuse the land for our selfish purposes, rejecting and poorly treating those faithful servants that God sends. We have the opportunity to produce good fruit. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for not putting us into boxes. Thank you that you have given us the freedom and the ability to love freely and to love Jesus and to not keep him in that box. Lord, help us as we go forth to not squish him into something that he doesn't fit into. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.